On this episode of This Week in Linux, the Linux kernel 5.4 was released, and we also got some information from Google saying that they want the Android kernel closer to the mainline Linux kernel. We'll also take a look at some legal news with the United States FTC versus YouTube regarding some content for kids versus family friendly. It's pretty, pretty complicated, but we'll get into it later on. A Bytecode Alliance was formed to push forward the WebAssembly technology. System76 announced that they will be starting to work on building their own laptops in-house. We've got a lot of new releases this week from the IP Fire Firewall project, Kodi Entertainment Center, Handbrake, MPV Media Player, the Brave Browser, and a new game from Valve that is related to Half-Life. Later in the show, we'll check out some cool Humble Bundles for security, plus a music and sound effects bundle, as well as much, much more. So, I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized, make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, load balancers, integrated firewalls, and more. You can get all this plus access to world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also has over 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for one month for free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean for that with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash tux. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux. A first in the show this week is the latest release of the Linux kernel, the 5.4 release. And this has been a fantastic year for the Linux kernel releases. There's been a lot of uh, awesome amount of hardware enablement that's been added to various different iterations of the kernel. And this is no different. There's quite a few things that have been added, such as the support for the Qualcomm Snapdragon 855 uh, hardware, support for new AMD and Intel GPUs, support for Intel Ice Lake Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt support, uh, the FlySky fly drone, drone receiver support, and many, many more, including uh, support for the AMD Arcturus GPU. Arct I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but that's what we're going to go with. And they've also done a lot of improvements for Wine and Proton. There's also been a new security feature added called Lockdown Mode. This will allow admins to restrict the access to kernel features even if the user is using root. So that's pretty cool, adds a lot of improvements to the security aspects. And in this case, there's going to be two modes of, for integrity and uh, confidentiality. So integrity mode will keep users from modifying the running kernel. Confidentiality will also keep users from extracting any confidential info from the kernel itself. So by default, both will be turned off, but is great for enterprise applications where if you want to keep individuals who have uh, stolen credentials or elevated their user rights for whatever from doing any damage. So that is a really nice feature to have. This release also gets support for XFAT. And if you're not aware, XFAT is Microsoft's file system for flash drives and SD cards. Historically, Microsoft has used XFAT to collect massive licensing fees from vendors including Android and very many things from like if you are using Android, uh, like these a lot of manufacturers are getting like having to pay patent fees to Microsoft because of this significant fees. So this is an interesting thing because of that because basically XFAT itself is not very good, but the patent system 
uh, and the, the amount of fees they were getting is drastic. So this is actually a big move from Microsoft for doing this because uh, it, up to this point, you needed to install additional software in Linux to mount XFAT drives. And however, now Microsoft is releasing the technical specs for XFAT in hopes that it will become part of the kernel. Now, this is technically support for the for XFAT is in the kernel now, but it's not like a stable standard standard thing. Uh, so Microsoft says it's important to, to us that the Linux community can make use of XFAT included in the Linux kernel with confidence. To this end, we will be making Microsoft's technical spec for XFAT publicly available to facilitate development of of, of non of conformant and interoperable implementations. This is good overall, but the so, the, the software of XFAT is not really that good. Uh, but there are some benefits to it that it has support for extremely large file sizes and it enables uh, seamless file ex exchange between devices or operating systems. So mostly because Windows doesn't really support that many uh, file systems. Actually, I'm pretty sure it's just NTFS and XFAT. It might be some more, but I'm pretty sure it's just those two. Uh, but anyway, uh, so there's actually some interesting things about this is because apparently the code that they released is not really good. And uh, they're looking for the open source community to do all the work to make it compatible. Of course they are, because it's Microsoft. But uh, Christoph Helwig, a longtime Linux developer, called the, 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 the software of XFAT a pile of crap. <laughs> and also, it's, uh, they say he says it's basically a re-implementation re of FS slash FAT slash not up or you know the file system of fat and not up to the kernel standards with a few indirections uh, indirections thrown in to also support xfat so no amount of work on this code base is really going to bring us bring us forward on support uh, greg kh also says that he knows that the code is horrible but they will bring it uh, they will bring it forward into staging and if people want to use it they can and if they don't they can just ignore it so this is an interesting situation because it seems more like they're doing it because of the uh, making good on their support, their patent uh, claim that they're no longer going to be using patents to uh, hurt companies and you know projects and stuff like that that they have been for years. Uh, this is also because they joined the OIN, uh, which is a network of patent. Uh, collaboration stuff where if you join the OIN you can use patents that are part of the other members and it's like a collective of saying hey if you're a part of this network you get access to be able to use these different patents without having any fear of anything of any legal ramifications for doing so and in turn you provide your own patents for the same value for the other projects and the other companies so that's what it seems like they're doing here uh, but yeah I guess overall it's pretty good because at least it will eliminate some of the patent trolling or that, that Microsoft does. So yeah, that's good. And anyway, the Linux 5.4 kernel has released and it's got a lot of great stuff in it. So if you'd like to learn more, I'll have a link to the announcement post from Linus Torvalds in the show notes below. So Google is saying that they want to have the Android kernel closer to the mainline kernel. So in a recent uh, speaking at the uh, Google engineers were speaking at the, at the recent Linux plumbers conference and they're saying that they want to have the Android kernel to use a regular Linux kernel potentially improving updates and security. Now this is actually the updates part and security part is because there's always something found in the kernel that's constantly being improved and that's one of the really great things that the kernel is updated so quickly but it also is an issue for Android because they are based on the Linux kernel but they don't have 
a direct connection to the Linux kernel because they make so many changes. At one point, it was like 60,000 different changes on the on the Android kernel versus the regular Linux kernel. So they there's no way for them to do it very quickly. So in some, most cases, there's many years in between updates of the kernel for Android because it's built on top of the kernel but it also has a lot of different combinations of out of codes, uh, out of tree code from chip makers, hardware partners, uh, firmware, firmware drivers, workarounds, and Google itself building various mil- uh, miscellaneous patches. So there's quite a few differences, right? Even though it's not 60,000 now because they have been working on trying to get it closer, uh, it's not really anywhere near close because of all the different manufacturers and chip makers and everything that's involved. There's a lot of stuff involved. So they've been talking about this since 2018, and this is a interesting situation because there are some benefits to it, of course. Having Android more up-to-date would be better security, better uh, speeds and performances, but there's also some issues with, in order to do this, Android has done a structure where they take the main kernel of Linux and then create a common like a Android common kernel that is then sent out to manufacturers to do their stuff, and then also there's other things that are implementing in, in, in conjunction with manufacturers and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's it's a it's a complicated issue because there are many aspects that make it incompatible with the Linux kernel in the fact that they have proprietary code in these in the Android common kernel. So I don't know exactly what they're wanting to happen, but it seems like they want to have the Linux kernel adopt proprietary code, which is not going to happen. Now, there are some aspects where proprietary code can implement modules with the kernel, but it's the kernel itself doesn't have any proprietary code that I'm aware of, and I'm pretty sure that would violate the license anyway, so very unlikely that it does. And they also don't even allow abstract layers, so uh, Google is saying that instead of shipping each Android device with its own device-specific Linux kernel, Google's idea is to upstream as much code as possible, which upstreaming code is good, uh, and stabilize Linux in kernel ABI so that there's stable interface for the Linux kernel and hardware vendors to target. When they say stable, they don't mean stable in the sense of stability of the system, but stabilizing the kernel's uh, release cycle so it doesn't update as much. That's essentially what it means. Uh, that's why it's fun for programming to have variety of different words that mean variety of different things, creating confusion. So this is kind of like uh, they're trying to put stuff into the Linux kernel, which would be good depending on what it is, and potentially bad depending on what all is being put in. There are some other options, though, in, in you know putting stuff into the Linux kernel that is open source, that are modifications from, from for Android from Google that are open source, would still be good, and then they could have a proprietary modules on setup on top, kind of like they have for the Project Treble, uh, because currently the Project Treble is where low-level code that's interacted with a device and Android itself is a you know big mess of code. But they do the Project Treble separation where the two, uh, they have them modular so that Android updates could be shipped quicker and the low-level code could remain unchanged between updates. So that's kind of how they do the Project Treble now. And I guess that's kind of what they want to do with the Linux kernel. Uh, mainlining, but uh, we don't really know exactly what they want it because they haven't specified uh, like a huge amount. Uh, but there are a lot of um, retractors saying that this is going to just create more proprietary or more proprietary companies trying to uh, uh, control the Linux kernel or whatever. 
Uh, and it's quite possible that that's what they're trying to do. And it is Google, and I wouldn't put it past them. But uh, I really doubt that the Linux kernel project would allow any of that stuff to happen. But it's just an interesting situation that they're trying to do. And uh, I'm curious to see what happens in the future, and I'll let you know what comes down the, the pipeline, as it were. Uh, but at the moment, we don't really have that much information. Although we do know that Google is still working on its own operating system called Fuchsia that may one day replace Android. So, you know, trying to make their software more compatible with the Linux kernel while at the same time trying to replace the Linux kernel is a, you know, there's a weird balance there. But anyway, let's move on to the next topic. Up next in the show is some unfortunate information, more Google news. And that is Google's trying to ruin things. Now, you could say that there's a lot of people who are talking about this topic. And if you've you know seen, there's a lot of YouTube coverage on this. And really, it's the FTC versus YouTube. And the four kids content versus family-friendly content. Now, there's a lot of information and video on YouTube related to this topic. But unfortunately, a lot of it is wrong. Now, there are certain pieces that are correct, but they're not taking the full context of it, creating this weird uh, hate train towards the FTC. Now, I'm not saying the FTC is, you know, totally okay with, like, they're not innocent in this situation because they are trying to do things that they don't really understand, which could create a lot of problems. Uh, so they're, they're trying to expand the rules of COPPA, which is essentially an overreaching thing that they're doing. But the problem is that YouTube is doing their best to make the FTC look awful, while at the same time avoiding all laws that they have been violating for years. Because really, it's YouTube's fault here, because they have been ignoring the law since the inception of the company and of the website. Let's get into it. I'm going to cover these in both sides of the story because there's multiple parts, but there's two main points of FTCs, what they're doing, and what YouTube is doing. So I'm going to cover this as a whole, but first of all, I want to cover the uh, expression that people are giving towards FTC, FTC related to COPPA, which is the Children's Online Pr Privacy Protection Act. So that's a mouthful. Uh, so this is an issue of you know people like basically YouTube passing the buck and passing the the responsibility on to content creators rather than implementing a system that is actually useful to both the sides of the children and parents as well as the creators on the platform because you know YouTube doesn't do anything that benefits the you know the actual way to do it right they they do things that benefit themselves and and remove as much of responsibility on themselves as they can now, I understand why someone would want to remove responsibility for themselves because this is a very complicated topic, but the fact that they're putting the responsibility on the content creators and pretending that it's our responsibility and not theirs, as well as blaming FTC for something that they are themselves violating for the entire existence of the company, it's really, really annoying, but we'll get into that in a second. So first of all, I'm going to cover what is mostly widely known about this topic. Then I'll explain that it's not just the government overreach that a lot of people are claiming it is. So first of all, this is what is being said about the uh, FTC expansion. Now, there's YouTube viewers and creators are petitioning the FTC or the Federal Trade Commission to clarify and reconsider the new regulations for the COPPA that are related to YouTube creators. Now, this is 
something that is important that they don't need to change things towards YouTube creators because they have specified that they are talking about, uh, you know, going after specific creators if they have to. And they've in, in one of their press conferences, the director of the federal, the FTC said essentially this, that they will go after like larger creators and, you know, if they have to and that kind of thing, uh, mainly because their YouTube is just passing it off the blame, but we'll get to that in a second. Anyway, so they're saying that by shutting off personalized ads on creators, content will cause more the the content or creators' content, like the family-friendly content, it will cause more harm than good, especially for children, because the quality family-friendly content will shrink, while more mature content will grow. Yet kids will still be watching. Of course they would. And the FTC should not expand copyright regulations for content creators, broadening the definition of child-directed to include child-attractive content. This would force many creators to turn off personalized ads. As a result, even more quality content will dry up and more mature or extreme content will fill the platform. And there's cases where people, and I agree with this part, this part of it, because the FTC is, broad, is trying to broaden their uh, regulations from child-directed to child-attracted. And what this means is that currently, if you are focusing your content towards a child, you have to specify that you are and you're not allowed to collect any data. You're not allowed to collect any information, track the information, or anything like that with children who are 13 years or under. Actually, I guess it's more 12 years or under. So uh, this the issue is that if you have content directly to kids, you're not allowed to take any information about them. Now, creators are not necessarily doing this. Actually, they're not at all most of the time. However, YouTube is, and that's the problem. So by doing personalized ads, in order to do personalized ads, you actually have to track everyone, the people who are watching it, to give them personalized targeted ads. And that's where the problem comes. Because YouTube has been doing this forever, the entire existence of the platform, and has known that they shouldn't have done it because the, the COPPA law has existed before YouTube. So the COPPA law was created in 1998, and YouTube was created in 2005, and then Google bought them in 2006. So there was plenty of time for them to know not to do the things they've been doing. Anyway, we get back to the thing that the petition is being made for, which is still accurate. They, the, 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 you should sign the petition and write a comment to the FTC to let them know that they should not be expanding the regulations because they shouldn't. What they should be doing is actually enforcing the existing regulations that are already are enforceable towards YouTube. But because they're not enforcing them, YouTube has been ignoring it for years. Anyway, we'll get to that in a second. So, the YouTube's Kids app is actually a better solution for children and for parents in the sense that it, rem it removes all privacy concerns around personalized ads. Now, there are some negatives to the creators because not only does that, it also removes um, ability to subscribe to creators and all that other things, and that's why YouTube Kids is not used by a lot of kids and a lot of parents because they don't want to have to deal with having to find random content on the app. This is an issue that YouTube has kind of pretended that they're solving, but have really just ignored it, creating a barrier and roadblocks for parents, making it so that they would create accounts for their kids or let their kids use their accounts or whatever so that they could still collect data. It's the whole YouTube malicious way of doing it, but pretending that they're not. That's the issue that really uh, sets it apart for me. But anyway, 
just go back. I'm I, I'm going off on a tangent every once in a while. I apologize for that, but let's go back to the the petition part. They're saying creators face compa fines up to four forty two thousand five hundred and thirty dollars per video. Yet the regulation in the child the definition of the child directed is very vague. Also true. So in this, they're they're asking uh, on the petition. They're asking to the FTC to do the to do the following four things. One, provide an enforcement statement for creators, clarify the definition of child directed and not expand it to cover child attractive content. Number three, delay enforcement against creators until the FTC concludes its review of COPPA. And number four, allow parents to use YouTube Kids or YouTube Main without forcing creators to turn off personalized ads when parents choose to use YouTube Main. So they also want you to write a comment to the FTC if you would if you're interested in this conversation and this topic because it is pretty important and it does potentially affect this channel. But not exactly. I mean, I don't think anybody would be like confused about this channel and our and this content about being for kids. But it is family friendly, and depending on how vague and, and ambiguous the child directed versus child attractive content is, it can get complicated. So it might even affect this channel. I don't know. It's really weird. And I'm gonna go and I'm gonna make a video specifically on this topic to go much more in depth about what is being uh, uh, suggested for the new COPPA rules and uh, how this relates to YouTube's history and whatever. So this is more of like a overview. I mean, it's a pretty in-depth overview, but it's not as in-depth as I will go in the, in the next video. Uh, but uh, there, I just want to let you know that that's coming if you're interested about more details about that anyway. So as I said, the COPPA law was created in 1998 YouTube was created in 2005 and was purchased by Google in 2006, so they were fully aware that this was a, a law already. And in order to kind of ignore these rules, they decided to, to claim that YouTube was for 13 years old and older because the COPPA laws only apply to 12 years and younger. So that's why they, as if you go to a website and you try to sign up for something, it says you have to agree that you are 13 or older. That is why, because that that website does not want to have anything to do with having to deal with the COPPA laws, because it does create a very big complication for websites. This is also something that we do on various different things. If you're trying to join the forum for the Destination Linux Network forum, you know, you have to be 13 years or older because it's a really complicated, or get permission from your parent to do it. So that's the issue there. Now, uh, we don't actually collect any information from the users, but by putting stuff on the forum, it creates kind of that kind of issue you have to deal with. But anyway, YouTube does collect data on kids, and they know they do. And everybody knows that they have a huge amount of kid-directed content and have for years. But YouTube has, con has ignored the rules for the entire existence of the platform, as I said. The FTC also changed the rules in 2013 related to COPPA that would consider online services and things like YouTube that then YouTube decided to ignore again and pretend that they were not affected. But of course they were. And then it, at some point there were even reports that YouTube started advertising to companies claiming they were the number one source for kid entertainment while not complying with COPPA. I have not personally verified these reports, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did it because it's Google, and they try to get away with whatever they can, whatever malicious thing they can do, they and also pretend that they're doing it for you. 
So in this case, they made these new this new rule to pretend that they doing they're helping out creators when actually they're the reason we're in the situation in the first place. Anyway, I'm not going to go into super details because that's later on in the next video if you want to check that out. But what happened was that child advocacy groups advocacy groups filed complaints with the Department of Justice or DOJ against YouTube for violating COPPA, and then the FTC stepped in when the DOJ uh, handed it off to them essentially. So YouTube is the cause of this fiasco, even though the FTC is now trying to do an overreach thing where they're changing child directed to child attractive. And it's just, it's, it's just very complicated. What YouTube should have done was not violated the laws for years and created a system to actually be compliant with the laws. But because they didn't want to do that, they're now passing the responsibility to creators on the platform rather than doing what they should have done in the first place create systems that allow parents to make decisions on for their kids on the platform. That's all they had to do. But instead, what they're doing is creating a really complicated problem that the most annoying part of this is that they're pointing at their show. YouTube is making a situation where the system is now, whether a, a creator says that it's for kids or not for kids. However, there is a gray area there saying that content could be okay for kids but not necessarily specifically for kids. So they don't have that as an option. And the most annoying part about that is that COPPA, the law of COPPA actually says that if it is for a general audience, that is an exemption. So YouTube specifically did not make that an option because then they wouldn't have to deal with the legality of it. They would have, they would still have responsibility. And that is why this topic is so annoying. Because yes, the FTC is trying to overreach, but YouTube is the cause of the problem because they have been ignoring the law for over a decade. And they've been ignoring the newer laws that were specifically designed for YouTube for six years. So, not specifically for YouTube, but was, YouTube was in mind, was kept in mind regarding the updates. Uh, but it's just such an annoying thing. And um, yeah. I'm going to stop here because I can just go off on this uh, like a whole tangent even further than I already have on this topic because it's uh you know it's obviously really important to me regarding uh as a creator uh, it's it will affect my channel more than likely I don't know but it'll affect it but also the fact that YouTube is pretending that they're innocent in this situation was their fault in the first place. Ugh. Okay, I'm going to move on. Let's go to the next topic. Up next in the show is a good topic, actually, and that, well, that's a complicated topic, too, but more complicated in the sense that it's just buzzword bingo friendly. Uh, so anyway, uh, the Bytecode Alliance has been formed. This is a new alliance that is, a form, is being forged by Mozilla, Fastly, Intel, and Red Hat, and the goal of this partnership is to reinvigorate and initiate an initiative built around WebAssembly. So they aim to create a secure by default bytecode, which can be run from web browsers to desktops and IoT slash embedded devices. Internet of Things was what is what IoT means if you're not aware. The interesting history here is back in 2015, a consortium of Google, Microsoft, Mozilla, and WebKit already formed a alliance sort of thing in order to do the same kind of thing. But obviously that hasn't produced much since that, you know, or, or really at all. Uh, but now 
that you know the history, we'll look at like we're looking at another aspect of it that this is actually going to be a pretty interesting thing. And I'll go into details in a second. But you might be wondering, what is this even about? What is WebAssembly? So the short answer of what, what that is, is that it's a JavaScript replacement, among other things as well. But the idea is that it'd be able to increase performance and efficiency over a JavaScript engine and allow for developers to run untrusted code without risking their system. The reason why that untrusted code thing is there is because it allows you to have like a sandboxing of sorts through this so this software because you know basically now these browsers have a sound sandboxing system and it does apply to JavaScript as well but JavaScript is a bit of a complicated mess that's why it's uh, they're trying to look to it or replace it and it's also not the it, it wasn't really invented for the purpose that it is being used for these days so that's why they're talking about replacing it this actually seems to be something like in a competition to Microsoft because Microsoft is also doing something similar with uh, C sharp code as well as .NET. Uh, but this is actually pretty interesting because the, there's a lot of potential here uh, because WebAssembly is a really cool uh, concept and technology that has been shown to provide a ton, a ton of performance improvements to the point where you could actually play games inside of the browser using WebAssembly. Now, you could also play a variety of different games. I mean like crazy level games. So like uh, Unreal Engine actually had a demo a couple years ago that was showing off the new engine and all the new what it can do and Mozilla created a way to run that demo inside of WebAssembly through the browser that part itself is ridiculously cool so like a couple years ago is when that was made and to prove that WebAssembly is powerful they were creating it you know focusing on the game gaming industry because those you know that industry is very taxing to the systems and to technology because they try to get as much as they can out of the systems to provide the best gameplay and best rendering and quality and all that stuff so being able to support that makes it possible for the WebAssembly to do even better things on a more simplistic approach for like you know graphics editing or uh, you know, editing of like whatever kind of like AutoCAD, for example. In fact, uh, AutoCAD has their own version of a web-based uh, AutoCAD a thing from the Autodesk company. I mean, has an AutoCAD web version using WebAssembly to create you know uh, rent 3D renders and that, and product models and that kind of stuff through their software through the web. So it's a very very interesting piece of technology. Even though when you go to their website about Bytecode Alliance and you look at their announcement for their for their uh, the announcement of the alliance, it is just a ton of buzz buzzwords and like uh, keyword randomness and it's just like you know uh, it's just it's like it's like if you talk to a uh, executive about uh, the synergy of the of the alliance and whatever it's just it's not clear what they're talking about in the announcement but that's what it is is WebAssembly is related to WebAssembly and WebAssembly is a technology that could potentially make the web very very powerful even more so than it already is but there also is some caveats to this and that is that it makes it possible for proprietary code to run in your browser uh, more so than you know Chrome already does but in the sense that it will instead of running websites that run JavaScript, HTML, CSS, which are all open source. The front end is open source. Now, back end is technically not open source because it's PHP. That doesn't mean it's proprietary. It just means that it's, it's, it's loaded on the server, so what you see has nothing to do with that, and that's why it's different. But anyway, you can have potentially 
client side or client rendered content or software through WebAssembly being binary proprietary software, which could create some more other issues with the web. So while I'm excited about it, I'm also, you know, cautious, cautiously optimistic, I guess. But anyway, because it's being done by Mozilla and Intel and Red Hat, which are all huge proponents of open source, I am not as bothered by it. Uh, I hope that they are able to push it in a more open standard, in an open way uh, moving forward, and we don't have to worry about the proprietary issue, but uh, I don't know. But of all the projects and all the companies to be involved in this, I'm glad it's those because that has the most potential to be actually open and open focused so that's good let's just let's just go with that it's good for now hopefully it stays that way up next in the show is system 76 announced something really cool so system 76 has been around for many many years they've been creating software and uh, hardware specifically for linux and mostly hardware, but also a variety of different software, including Pop! OS and many other things. Uh, but they've been building all their hardware and laptops with the uh, Sager, I think it's Sager, and Clevo uh, hardware ODMs, where they, they make the software, the, the hardware, and then System76 takes that, repurposes it for Linux, makes modifications where they need to to make it better supported and all that stuff, and then ship it out as Linux hardware and Linux products. And that's what they've been doing for many years. And last year, they actually created the Thaleo desktop, making it where they could have in-house building of their desktops. But this is actually something that people immediately started asking about laptops. And the announcement is that System76 has actually said that they are going to be starting in 2020. They will be creating a... They will be begin the journey to make it possible to create in-house laptops. So Carl... Rochelle, I think that's how you say your name, his name, uh, he's the CEO of System76, and he says that the laptops will follow the same footsteps as the Thaleo and deliver as much form as it does function. And they say that the in-house design and built laptops production will probably take around two to three years to get on its feet, so they're just letting everybody know that that's what they're working on, but in two to three years, we'll actually be able to purchase these System76 laptops. So if you had just recently purchased a laptop, you don't have to worry that you're, you know, it's not It's not like it's going to be right around the corner, uh, but it is really awesome that they're working on this because it is very, very cool. Uh, so anyway, if you still, you can get a lap, System76 laptops if you want by going to system76.com, but uh, you know I'm really excited that they're doing this in-house approach because it shows that the manufacturing uh, arm of System76 has a lot of uh, potential and growth to come. So awesome. Anyway. If you'd like to learn more about it, I'll have a link to, uh, to some information about this in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of the open source firewall-based distribution, IP Fire. So IP Fire is, a, is based on their, their, the way they describe it is it's a hardened, versatile, state-of-the-art open source firewall based on Linux. It's ease of use and high performance in any scenario and extensibility make it usable for everyone. So actually, it's pretty interesting because it's a pretty, you know, straightforward, easy to use uh, interface because they have a web-based interface, and they say that it uh, it offers many configuration options for beginning, uh, beginning users or beginners and experienced system administrators. So uh, the latest version of IP Fire is 2.23 Core Update 137. That is a lot to say for a version number. Anyway, this this actually includes some really interesting things because they have improved support for their improved 
performance for the quality of service or QoS features, and it also has an updated Linux kernel as well. So the, uh, the improvements to the quality of service performance allows to pass a lot more traffic on smaller systems as well as reduces packet latency on faster ones to create a more responsive and faster network. So this is really good to see for the updates. If you'd like to learn more about this uh, project, the IPFire firewall project, I'll have a link to the website for the project as well as the latest update blog post in the show notes below. Up next in the show, I want to take a brief moment to talk about some housekeeping stuff related to the show and the network and the channel and everything. So first of all, speaking of network, if you're not aware, This Week in Linux is a part of the Destination Linux network, which is a collective of shows and YouTube channels and all kinds of things to help facilitate the Linux development and uh, marketing and open source community building and all that kind of stuff. Like the whole point of the network is to just allow a place for everyone to converge together in creating content and communicating and advocating for Linux and open source as a whole. Uh, so there's a lot of different things that we are working on in relation to that. And one of those things is the Destination Linux Network Forum so that you could go to discourse.destinationlinux.network or you can go to the destinationlinux.network website and find a link there in the top main menu section where you can go to the forum and join in on conversations related to different episodes of various content for various shows and videos. Or you could go and have conversations about any kinds of different topics, whether you want help with support for uh, learning Linux or you know, you're trying out something new and you want to get help with it. That kind of thing is also available there, as well as to you know, posting tutorials and all kinds of different stuff is available at the DLN forum. Also, This Week in Linux is available as an audio feed if you're not aware. You can subscribe to it to download it on your, your Podcatcher app where you have Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, or whatever else you might be using. You can subscribe to it with an RSS feed that is available on tuxdigital.com slash thisweekinlinux. Or if you are using a podcast app, you can just search for This Week in Linux in whatever podcast app you're using. It more than likely will show up. If it doesn't show up on whatever app you're using, let me know, please, so that I can fix that because I'm pretty sure it's in everything, but it might not be. Also, if you're not aware, we have a segment index, which is in the description of the YouTube video, as well as in the uh, bookmark slash chapter section of whatever podcast app you have, what allows you to jump between different topics, topics on the show at whatever order you want to do. Uh, so if you want to watch some, uh, one particular topic first, you can do that and then go back and watch the rest because, you know, you should go back and watch the rest. But uh, anyway, it makes it a lot easier to you to find different topics that we we're talking about as well as uh, skip right to them and uh, enjoy them that way. Uh, also, if you'd like to become a patron to, sell, to, to help the show as well as the help the network, you can go to Patreon and Sponsors and sponsor us that way by going to tuxdigital.com slash Patreon or tuxdigital.com slash sponsors to become a patron. You can also support the show by buying one of the con one of the products on the Destination Linux Network store. You can buy the This Week in Linux shirt, the Tux Digital shirt, or any of the other uh, product properties that the Destination Linux Network has. So if you want to uh, purchase a shirt for the Destination Linux podcast or whatever, there's all kinds of different options there. As well as be sure to get the Destination Linux Network launch shirt or hoodie or coffee mug, whatever you want. This is actually a really cool idea uh, and concept because this is basically the launch 
uh, it's a launch shirt for the network itself and it's more it's in a concert style in the design so i think it's pretty cool so like the front of the shirt has destination Linux network and the back of it has a list of all the different youtube channels and all the different podcasts that are associated to the network and in like a concert style so you could uh, kind of be there, like be there when the network is available or when it was launched and uh, you know uh, promote it that way if you want if you want to this is a limited time shirt uh, so we're not going to be having it forever but um, if you want to be a part of it and contribute to the sh the network this way, you can do so by going to Destination Linux Network and or destinationlinux.network slash store. Up next in the show is the latest release of Kodi Entertainment Center 18.5. So there's a lot of interesting improvements to these this version. Uh, it's actually just a point release, but they have done a lot of good things. Like they've done some fixes for the interface and look and feel of the estuary design, as well as other parts of the GUI, including the scroll bar behavior, icon names, label changes, and more. They've added dual support for artist slideshow, as well as fixed to allow, uh, always allow black screens, uh, screensaver if you wanted, because uh, there's actually a lot of people who don't want to, they. If you have a like, there's a a feature in a lot of TVs or monitors and stuff that if you have a 100% black screen or as much as possible, really. It will have, as a screensaver, I mean, it will automatically turn off the monitor so it doesn't actually have to be loading the, the black element. So if you have like a dark gray, it will keep that loaded at all times. But if you turn it into like solid black, it will know that you're trying to show black and 100% and then just turn off the monitor because it doesn't need to be running the hardware in order to do that. It's kind of like a really, it's kind of like an automated sleep system for the monitor, I suppose. Um, anyway, that's what that's for. So that's really cool. And they've also done a lot of stuff to like fixes to external subtitle playback, uh, fixes to the Q uh, the Q item stuff, uh, you know, fixes for the STRM files with the plugin URLs, all kinds of different things, including updates and fixes to the EPG database storage, uh, PBR service, and many, many more. Like even like commercial skip processing stuff, like EDL. All kinds of stuff. So there's another thing I want to talk about with Cody is that they've actually recently uh, announced that they're going to be switching to uh, fully Python 3. The next version of Cody will have a... They actually announced this two years ago that they were going to be doing this. But the next version of Cody has them migrating to use Python 3 interpreter in many of its add-ons. And they explained that, you know, why they're doing it and what it would, and the reason is basically that the Python 2 is going into complete deprecation, so all of Python 2 will no longer be supported at all. And they've actually they actually already deprecated most of it for a long time ago, but this is more like there will be no updates ever, sort of stuff. So the Python 3 here uh, is important because they're switching to it, and that way, uh, you know, you have time to transition your add-ons and that kind of thing. But there's some issues because there's some add-ons that won't work and there uh, there has been a lot of work on those add-ons, but they need to have transitioning from uh, Python 2 to Python 3 because January 1st, 2020 is the end of life for Python 2. So they have basically taken the big step of the changing it over because the nightly builds of Kodi 19, aka Matrix, are now using Python 3 as an interpreter to run all of the Python-based add-ons. There is some issues currently that exist, 
And what they're they're asking for is anybody who wants to try out the next version of Cody and are willing to be a beta tester, they're asking for people to become testers to make sure that the next version of Cody has all the add-ons working that you know you use, for example. Uh, so if you are a user of Cody and would like to help test out, uh, be sure to check out the post in the show notes below because I'll have a link directly to the Python-related topics as well as the latest release of 18.5. Up next on the show is the latest release of Handbrake, which is an open-source media converter utility, which is probably one of the best in the on the on the platform really. And this version is 1.3.0. And in this version, they've actually redesigned the QUI. They've added support for surround sound, or 4K surround sound of 2160 uh, with f- uh, 60 frames per second for the new PlayStation preset. They've also added new presets for Discord and Discord Nitro. I don't exactly know what that is because I'm not sure if you you can you can't upload stuff on Discord. So like, what are you making content uh, presets for Discord? I don't know. Uh, but that maybe is like uh, no, I don't know. Because they don't really have to specify exactly what that means. But anyway, if you know what that means, please let me know in the comments below or send an email to the chat, to the show if, you, if you'd like to do that. Uh, they've also improved some support for Gmail as well as uh, improved the Ultra HD Blu-ray disc reading. And this is like if you don't have copy protection on those discs. Uh, they also improved uh, WebM container encoding. They've added uh, improvements to external SSA and ASS sub- subtitles, as well as improved uh, NVIDIA NVENC encoding, as w- and also added AMD VCE encoding support on Linux via Vulkan, which is really cool. They've also added some po- support for the Flatpak version of uh, Handbrake as well. So if you'd like to learn more about this particular release, I'll have a link to the show notes in the show notes to Handbrake 1.3.0. Up next in the show is a latest release of the MPV Media Player. Now this is a version of 0.30, uh, and it's that's kind of a weird number. So it's like you know 1.0 implies it's like a stable thing, but it's interesting because this is a cross-platform open-source video player derived from MPlayer or MPlayer 2. And I've actually been using MPV for a very long time, and it's my favorite media player, and it's pretty much my exclusive media player. I use VLC for some small things, but mostly it's MPV. Uh, for almost everything because MPV is great. Now, a lot of people don't like the fact that MPV doesn't really have a GUI. Uh, It does have a GUI when you're loading something, but by default, when you haven't anything loaded and you open the application, it doesn't do anything. So once you have a video playing, then it will actually have a GUI that you can hover and display the GUI and manipulate with it. But there is a lot of stuff that's keyboard-driven, and uh, that's actually one of the reasons I like MPV because it's keyboard-driven and it has like so many options and so many features, but... Uh, I'll get to it in another video if somebody wants me to explain why I like MPV. I'll go into massive detail if you want me to. But in the, in this particular case, we're going to talk about this release. And this version has a added Vulkan interoperability with its CUDA hardware uh, decoding and also VA-API support with interoperability with Vulkan. So this is really cool. And they've also added some uh, changes to it where they uh, replaced the previous Vulkan implementation with one based upon lib placebo, which is a library called placebo, which is, I don't know, I just like the fact that it's called lib placebo. But anyway, uh, they've also added support for presentation feedback with DRM EGL code, as well as uh, uh, 30BPP support for DRM output backend, as well as a lot of other things, including Android context support for Vulkan, 
and gamepad support through SDL2. Now I don't want I don't know why you'd want gamepad support for a media player, but it's cool that you can if you want to. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about MPV, I'll have a link in the show notes uh, to to, the, to this player as well as the release notes for the latest version. And if you would like me to go into more detail as a you know a a longtime user of MPV and why I think it's one of the best players, or if not the best player, uh, let me know in the comments below. Or send me a, an email, or go to the the, the the Destination Linux Network forum and make a comment there if you'd like to as well. Any any way you want to, you know, get in touch. Please let me know if you'd like to see more about MPV and my reason for liking it the most. Yeah. So anyway, let's move on to the next topic. Up next in the show is the latest version of Brave Browser. This is actually a big major milestone for Brave. This is 1.0. And if you're not aware, Brave is a browser based on Chromium, and it's also open source. And Brave focuses on protecting privacy by blocking advertisements, trackers, and also tries to introduce a way to display privacy-respecting advertisements. This is a weird way of saying that they take ads and then replace them with their own ads that are, like, you know, more respectful to the user and don't have as much tracking or any tracking really and it's like their own ad network that they sell ads through that people you can see through the brave the brave browser so it's interesting but you can use that if you want to but by default it's not on so you have to opt in and once you do you'll be displayed advertisements that don't track you or collect any information that's just it's just an interesting approach to this situation so they remove ads and then add new ads back in if you choose to do that now, I don't know how that really works by removing ads that the websites are getting, you know, putting their on their website and then getting ads back from Brave. I don't know. Uh, I think it's based on their their bat system, but how that really works for creators and, you know, website um, maintainers and that stuff, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I, could, I should look into that more, but it's interesting while at the same time kind of weird. Uh, but anyway, so Brave... The bad thing I'm talking about is the basic attention tokens, which is basically uh, Brave's structure of blockchain-based advertising model, so that when you opt in for privacy-friendly advertisements, you will earn bat tokens, which you can then spend to reward publishers. So it's it's odd because they're removing the ads that makes the money for the website, but then creating tokens that goes to people who could give money to that website, but that website doesn't know that you did that because they don't know you're using Brave or that you opted in on Brave anyway. It, anyway, it's a weird, it's an interesting thing, but it's still pretty weird. So they say that 70% of revenue shares to users in the form of the, of the, like, so when you use the basic attention tokens or the BAT, you get the user gets 70% of that share going to their BAT system that they can then give to publishers I'd have to do more some some more research on this. They there this is the latest version. Uh, they're the first big massive version of 1.0 for Brave. And they, so the reason why they're creating Brave is that either we all accept that the the 330 billion dollar ad tech industry treating us as their products, exploiting our data, piling on more data breaches and privacy scandals, and starving publishers or of revenue, or we reject the surveillance com- economy and replace it with something better that works for everyone. And that's the inspiration behind Brave. Uh, this is the CEO of Brave Software, uh, Brendan Ike. I don't know. He was also one of the co-founders of Mozilla, so it's pretty interesting. But it's weird because the, their solution is also complicated. I mean, it's it's better in terms of like ethically, you know, and morally. They're not 
you know, they're trying to remove uh, the privacy violations and the tracking and all that stuff, which is great. But at the same time, they're helping uh, facilitate Google's dominance on the web with basing their browser on Chromium and all this other stuff. So it, it, pros and cons, essentially. There's pros and cons. I would actually rather them make it possible for uh, the BAT system to be opted in through another browser, like, for example, Firefox, where I could continue to use Firefox, which I think is the better browser. And if you'd like to learn why I think I, I, that it's the better browser, check out the seven reasons why Firefox is my favorite web browser a video that linked in the show notes, if you'd like. And I think that'd be really awesome if they were to make it possible for me to opt into their ads there rather than ads on their browser only. Uh, that'd be interesting. But anyway... If you'd like to learn more about Brave or you want to check it out, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some really interesting news from Valve. They have announced a new Half-Life game called Alex. Now, this is not Half-Life 3 because, as everybody knows, or if maybe you don't, Valve cannot count to three. They have Half-Life 1 and 2, Portal 1 and 2, Left 4 Dead 1 and 2, Team Fortress 1 and 2, but never a three of any of them. Anyway... That's just an interesting thing. I think that's funny, but it's become a meme, really, uh, of Half Life. You know, getting Half Life Three because there's like the whole Half Life Three confirmed joke. Uh, but this is interesting because they're creating this new Half Life game, and I watched the video, and it's really, really cool. It looks really good. Uh, it's a VR game too. That's what makes it the most interesting. Is that it is a VR only version of Half Life. Now, this is a game that is placed in between one and two, so it's like a pre sequel and uh, a prequel, sequel, pre-sequel. Anyway, and it's really interesting looking. I actually haven't played Half-Life at all, so I don't really know the references and stuff. There's also like this reveal of this guy coming out at the end, and I don't know who that is. So, you know, it didn't really mean anything to me, but if you were a big fan of Half-Life, I would assume that that'd be a very big reveal. Um, But I don't know what it means. I do need to play this game. Actually, I think I'm going to play, uh, you know, like a live stream of this game. So, like, a first reaction of Half-Life. And, uh, I think that'd be cool. If you if you think that'd be cool, let me know in the comments below, and I will do it. Uh, but anyway, so this is really cool because it has VR support for this game. And I think that this game looks really epic, even if I didn't, I don't even know the context of the game. But it still looks pretty awesome because of the quality of the graphics the fact that it's a VR game I actually want to play rather than those weird, random, like, throwing items games. or I don't know. It looks really, really cool. So I uh, hopefully at some point we'll be able to play this, even though it's a really expensive thing to play because you have to buy a VR headset and the controllers and everything that work with the game. Uh, though if you do buy the index from Valve, they get they give you the game for free, which is a pretty cool thing to do. Uh, but at the same time, still a pretty big thing to purchase to play this game. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Half-Life Alex, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. But one important thing to note is that they have no confirmation that it's going to work on Linux. They say that it is currently only confirmed for Windows. However, they are working on getting it to work on Linux. But they don't know when that will happen. So at some point, it will probably work on Linux, but we don't know when. Uh, but anyway, if you'd like to learn more, we'll have, I'll have a link to it in the show notes to the video for the trailer of Half-Life, Alex, as well as a link to the Gaming on Linux article about it. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some Humble Bundles. With uh, First, we're going to talk about the Cybersecurity Bundle by Packet. 
And this is a really interesting thing because if you're interested in hacking or penetration testing or network security and that kind of thing, this is definitely something to check out because they have a practical web app penetration book with uh, related to Kali Linux. They also have practical Linux security solutions, threat and vulnerability assessment for enterprises, Kali Linux web penetration testing cookbook, hands-on web penetration testing with Kali Linux, cyber threat hunting, ethical hacking masterclass, learning Kali Linux, becoming a hacker, uh, practical cyber intelligence, all kinds of different other things. Uh, there's a lot of books available in this bundle if you are interested in checking it out. I have a link in the show notes for the cybersecurity by packet bundle. Uh, and also to be clear, this link as well as the, the next uh, bundle is affiliate links. So this, if you would like to contribute to the show, you can purchase these bundles with this, these links in the show notes and in the video description, which will very much benefit this, this show and this channel and help out with, uh, you know, because there's an affiliate per small percentage commission every time uh, someone purchases this, these bundles with the link that I provide. And I would very much appreciate that because there's no extra cost to you and it would greatly benefit the channel and the show if you were to use that. So please do so. You'll find links for those in the show notes. And also another thing that is affiliate linked is a bundle for music and sound effects. Now this is really cool because I never even I never know they even did this, but they have uh, sound effects for various different games and all kinds of like movie based stuff like voiceover. Uh, stuff that's related so you can get game jang game jingles and 8-bit sound effects you can get uh, christmas related music ambiance packs uh, sound effects packs you can get ver variety of like voiceover for uh, different genders and different types of like uh, voices you can get uh, real-time strategy game orc troop voiceovers like interesting like a bunch of stuff like pirate game sounds horror music atmospheres fantasy game sounds alien uh, tech sounds, all kinds of stuff. So if you're interested in checking that out, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below uh, because you can get zombie voices, cowboy voices, puzzle pack stuff, tons of stuff. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more, have a link in the show notes below. And also remember this link is a affiliate link that will benefit the channel and the show if you're to use it. So please do so. I would very much appreciate it. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. And also be sure to ring that bell to get notifications on new episodes as well as videos that are posted to this channel. And if you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute with via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And actually, this is also a lot of stuff that you want to check out in the next episodes. Uh, we have a bunch of cool stuff coming, as well as previous episodes you want to check out with the episode 148, where we talk about Google tracking your health records, which is very concerning. Uh, we also have episode uh, 147, 146, 145, and 144 that are all great checking out, especially with the episodes where we had special guests like Wendell from Linux, uh, Level 1 Tech and Level 1 Linux. We also had Lucas Arzinski from the 
the Pine phones uh, and the Pine Pinebook Pro and all that stuff from Pine64. We have a really great interview with him. We also have a couple guest episodes where we had uh, Bo Bo Weaver, who's a uh, an ethical hacker or pen tester. We have really great inf- con- uh, conversations with him regarding VPNs and network security and all kinds of stuff like that. And we also have Dolphin Oracle from the MX Linux group. Where or the Linux, MX Linux distro, and we'd have an interview with him talking about the latest releases and stuff that they're working on for MX Linux. So lots of great stuff to check out. Go to destinationlinux.org to check out those episodes. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.